the Democratic political advisor and executive director of the nonprofit More Perfect Union, Faz Shakir. Faz, how are you today? Good, Tavis. How are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, you sound hollow. You sound hollow. Miles is going to fix that. Uh, but I'm good to have you. I'm glad to have you on the program. Uh, yeah, an hour of that I can't take. Uh, and neither can the audience. But we'll get we'll get that audio sounding just right here in a second. Uh, but I'm glad to have you on. And I have to start with the obvious. Um, uh, no surprise here. It is the biggest story in the world, literally. Uh, President Biden has announced. I, I suggested yesterday. I thought this was coming. Uh, and indeed, the White House uh, has announced that the president is going to visit Israel. Uh, as this Gaza humanitarian crisis worsens, Hamas uh, has and is releasing video of hostages. Israel continues to bomb uh, um, unrelentingly uh, in Gaza. Uh, and uh, the ground offensive uh, in Israel has been at least delayed momentarily uh, after the visit of Joe Biden. If there's any evidence you can give, uh, one could offer, I should say, to suggest that uh, the U.S. and Israel are certainly talking uh, beyond the fact that we're shipping weapons and et cetera to help them. Uh, if there's any evidence beyond the fact that they're talking and that the U.S. is you know, perhaps getting through on some level, uh, it is that this ground offensive has been delayed until after the visit of the president. Uh, and so uh, Biden headed to Israel. The ground offensive certainly will not begin while he's there. Uh, and so when he leaves the country, uh, I assume all hell will break loose then. Uh, but until he leaves, um, at least the ground offensive isn't going to uh, isn't going to commence. But as you can imagine, um, this uh, this trip to Israel announced by the president uh, is 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 uh, is a bitter pill uh, for many to swallow. Uh, there are certainly some objectives uh, to the president going to visit Israel. One of those objectives is to show once again that we stand with Israel. Uh, the other is to remind these other Arab states, you don't want none of this. You don't want to get involved in this. Uh, the U.S. is an ally of Israel. You do not want to get into this. And that's uh, uh, significant in part because we see Iran starting to make some some comments uh, and trying to figure out what their options are in this process. But it's it's clearly attempted not just to show our support of Israel, but to uh, suggest to these Arab states, you don't want to be, you don't want to get involved in this. Uh, and there's some other objectives we'll talk about as we move through this hour. But uh, President Biden on his way to Israel, uh, the ground offensive there, uh, that is to say Israel will not move into uh, Gaza on the ground until after he leaves. Uh, but uh, it's going to rain terror. Uh, there's going to be a rain of terror when the president actually leaves Israel. And you can imagine uh, for those Palestinians and for those who are sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, and for those who have questions about uh, the role that Israel um, is now playing, uh, a visit from the U.S. president does not make this conversation any easier to have. But we're going to have it anyway. And we'll commence when we come forward with our guest, Fash Shakir. You're listening to Tavis Smile. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Sounds different, huh? This, this is Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Let's hope it sounds different. Uh, that is Fast Shakir's phone line. Fast, good to have you on the program. Let me start, as I said a moment ago, with the obvious. Uh, President Biden is visiting Israel as this Gaza humanitarian crisis worsens and the world watches. Um, this is a bit of a high wire act. Um, as I mentioned moments ago, there are reasons uh, why the president has decided to make this trip uh, because he knows uh, that it's a, a high stakes visit. Uh, and yet he's going anyway. So uh, let's just start with, with your read of the latest developments regarding the Israeli-Hamas war, and we'll jump from there for the hour. Let, let's talk about though. Well, Tavis, when you suffer your own version of a 9-11, which Israel certainly did, and you get hit with 
one of the worst days in its country's history, and thousands of plus you know people die from a terrorist attack. They're going to rightly be in search of allyship and sympathy and understanding of we've got to be able to respond to this. We've got to have nation that can be secure and safe in its own borders. We've got to provide security and safety for Israel. And that relationship with the United States means even more at this point. You know, you're, you're, you count on your friends in the toughest moments, not in the easiest moments, right? And this is one of the toughest moments for Israel. And then as you deal with that, as you're United States and you say, you're President Biden, you're trying to help the strong ally has always been there with us. What do you say about Gazans? And, and that's where I think you've seen the last 48 hours if you're watching Secretary of State Tony Blinken run from one country to the next, he's been in like Jordan and Bahrain and Qatar and Saudi Arabia, and he's all over the place. And right now he's in Israel for seven and a half hours last night talking about how do we get aid into these gardens? How do we get humanitarian aid so that innocent people aren't suffering? And that was the hangup. That was the issue of why the president didn't want to go until they could secure that we could come with a commitment that there be humanitarian aid flowing into into the Gaza Strip, which we're led to believe that this presidential trip will hopefully unlock. What's fascinating about that for me, and I'm not naive, um, is sometimes you have to do two or three things at one time. I understand that. And that's why I called it a high wire act. Um, On the one hand, um, we see this memo that leaked out of the State Department and the Washington Post uh, ran a story about it. I'm sure you saw um, that uh, high-ranking uh, Biden officials have been told not to use terminology, phraseology like ceasefire. Stop using phrases like we want to see the bloodshed stop. Um, there's certain things, uh, but ceasefire at the epicenter of that, that's not the language that they want to use right now. That is not staying on message, as we say in politics. Uh, and so this message, uh, this uh, the leaking of this memo, rather, and the messaging in it uh, is quite telling. Uh, they don't want to use phrases like uh, uh, stop the bloodshed. You don't want to use the word ceasefire. Uh, we had a guest on this program yesterday, Phyllis Bennis, who said uh, the exact opposite. And I agree with her that what we need right now is, in fact, a ceasefire. I'm not naive. Uh, B.B. Netanyahu has made it very clear he wants to crush and destroy. Those are his words. To crush and destroy Hamas, uh, the innocent victims notwithstanding. But that's his end and aim. So when this Biden visit ends, as I said a moment a moment ago, uh, they're going to rain down terror on, 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 on Gaza City. Uh, there's no question about that. But, uh, but how do you read this leaked memo suggesting that they shouldn't use the phrase ceasefire that's not the message they want to send right now. How do you juxtapose that with them working overtime to get humanitarian aid inside of Gaza? It, it's 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 a tricky policy to sort of advance, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's tricky. Uh, but so a couple of thoughts in reaction to that. Mm-hmm. One is uh, if after 9-11, right, people, some nation, our friend and ally came to us and said, hey, Engage in a ceasefire, United States of America. Don't do anything against the Taliban or anybody. We would have said, to hell with you. We're Mm going to figure out how to respond appropriately. So that's one point. Mm -hmm. But second, you raised uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and I think that is the the fundamental problem here. I think you got a Prime Minister of Israel who we frankly don't trust who has the right motivations and instincts to do what's right for his people. So if he were saying, I was going to go after Hamas, and we believed and understood that he was going to try to target in response accordingly to hold those responsible who engage in terror, we'd feel one way about it, Tavis, I think. But if we think that actually this unleashes for him a desire to just go all in and 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 hurt a bunch of civilians in Palestine who, quite frankly, he 
hasn't really ever shown much compassion for. I mean, if you look back at Prime Minister Netanyahu in 2019, he was advocating for those who care about the state of Israel, we should we should support and fund Hamas. Why would a Prime Minister of Israel say that? Think mm-hmm. about that. Reflect on that. Why would a Prime Minister of Israel say, you, if you, for those who care about the state of Israel, we should fund and support Hamas? And the reason that he has felt that, why Netanyahu has felt that, is because he wants a division within the Palestinians. He wants, you know, a, a militant side because he feels like we can have more strength and we can be uh, able to go on the offensive against Palestinians if they don't have a government who has more legitimacy and credibility with the world. And so for his own advantage point, he's loved having Hamas in power. And you see that this this is his opportunity to say, both form a war cabinet, get, gain allyship, and say, I've, now I can do what I've always wanted to do, is go into Gaza, seize it, occupy it, uh, you know, tear down buildings. And instead of an alternative ideology, if you had a different prime minister of Israel, who'd say, our safety and security of Israel, and I say this as somebody who believes this myself, if, if, if I'm the prime minister of Israel, I want a safe, safe and stable and strong Israel, and I know it is contingent on having safe, strong, and stable neighbors. Mm. And they need to be doing well as well. And it, it, we will not be ever safe if all of our neighbors are living in destitution, poverty, if they are crime-stricken, if they cannot form government. That hurts us. And I don't think that mentality has ever been shared by Netanyahu. And as a result, you have a prime minister of Israel who is wanting the neighbors to actually suffer, not to feel like you're building them up to try to be stable and secure in their own right. Wow, there's, there's a lot in that. Uh, let me just take a few minutes to, un, uh, to unpack it with you. Um, first of all, this audience has heard me say before, and I, I, I welcome uh, your comments uh, just now. But again, I have not, uh, I have not said this uh, uh, ill-advised, uh, and I believe it to the core of my being. Bibi Netanyahu is the wrong person. Um, there have been moments uh, in this process, and this process goes back years and years and years and decades and decades. We know that. Um, this process being, by, by that I mean, of course, the drama between Israel and, and Palestine. This is not a new story. It's an old story. Uh, and yet, uh, over the course of that uh, period, there have been wrong leaders, I think, on both sides of the table. Uh, clearly, Hamas yeah. is not the right person. They're not the right. They're not a person. They're a group. They're an entity. But they are the elected political leadership uh, at the moment, uh, and they're the wrong people. But so is Bibi Netanyahu. Um, this is the wrong person, I think. Um, that's my own view. And your comments just now underscore that. And I was just thinking while you were talking of the right word to describe that strategy, or as George Bush would say, strategery. <laughs> Trying to think of the right word to describe that strategery, as you just laid it out, uh, that comes from the mind. Of Bibi Netanyahu, and the word I wrote down while you were talking is sinister. That's a sinister uh, sort of public policy. Uh, that's my read of it, Faz. Uh, how do you read it? Yeah, it's a it's a place of insecurity, and it says that like think about it in your own family relationships. If you if you see all your relationships as zero sum, that I can only be better if my brother yes, is down. Yes. I can only be better if my sister is down then what is that making you? You don't have confidence and security and safety in yourself. That you, Instead, you have to feel like you have to put people down. I think now, of course, what does that breed? And if you, as you talked about, from the creation of Israel in 1948 onward, mm-hmm. it has been an intractable and, and, and painful journey for this long period of time. And while there have been some lights of, of, of hope, mostly we have seen people flocking to, you sinister is a good way, negative, like pessimistic pushdown, mentalities on both sides, right? That's what terrorism is, too. It's, it's a reaction and saying, you know, I, I don't care about your safety and security, Israel, and we're going to make you feel unsafe and secure. So you have a downward cycle 
a violence that has continually perpetuated because both sides are not caring or wanting the stable and safe uh, existence of the other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's where I think it has always needed and wanted and hoped for a United States and an, an international community who cares and has the values to engage and say, hey, we're, the gr- we're going to be grown-ups at this table and help you get to the solutions that is best for your own lives. Yeah. And, and we, you know, that, that's where I hope Joe, President Biden will pull, that's hopefully the role that he will play. He's no, he's no novice at this. You know, he's been around the block. Mm-hmm. He's done this a few times. But I don't think it helps if you just if you if you don't keep in mind that the, the what needs to come out of this chaos is a stable, secure Palestine where people can live in peace yeah. and stability. That that will help Israel fundamentally. I've always believed it. The, the other part of uh, <clears throat> the other part of what makes this sinister for me um, is that uh, that strategy means that from time to time you're sacrificing the lives of your own people. I mean, there's a particular end and aim you're trying to achieve, but in the process with that kind of strategy um, to support Hamas, to divide the Palestinian people, Hamas responds in the way that they just did. What that means is over time you're going to be sacrificing the lives of your own people. Yeah. I mean, that's right. I mean, at some point, if you're saying that I'm in 2019, when you look at Netanyahu's comments of wanting Hamas in power in Palestine, to say that that is a good outcome for Israel, rather than to say, hey, we want a different government. Let's work with, the, let's say, a Palestinian authority. Let's build them up. Let's right. have uh, stable and good negotiations with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia, with others to try to get to a resolution so that this isn't the sore spot and a cancer and a wound uh, unto humanity that it continues to exist forever. Instead, instead of having that courage, that peace requires the most courage, as you as we know. It's easier sure. to just engage in conflict and war. That, sure. That's a, that's an easy human reaction. But he has moved in that direction because it's always been to his political benefit. It helps him generate, you know, funding and defense measures and all of the needs that Israel needs. That when they're in a war posture, they certainly do get more support during these periods of times, rightly so, because they're better, you know, they've been a better democratic ally in that region, certainly for the United States, than most others there. And yeah. for that reason, they've always been able to count on the United States as a, as a, as a strong support in these moments. But it's not, to your point, you don't want conflict. You shouldn't want conflict. This isn't where you want to live. Mm-hmm. But when you do, you have reason to doubt the motivations of somebody who feels like, you know, is, is seeking conflict. Yep. Uh, there's a lot more news to get to, um, including um, the election today or the attempt at electing a Speaker of the House. Uh, speaker, speaking of uh, drama, we'll talk about that in a moment here. But a few more things uh, on this Israel Hamas situation before I move to some other issues I want to cover with our guest, Faz Shakir, in this hour, who is the executive director of the nonprofit More Perfect Union. Um, the other thing I want to come to right quick that you that you raised um, moments ago that made me think about the following and that is this notion, and I'm hearing this more and more every day, Faz. Um, the U.S. has said, you know, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, that the solution here is a, uh, in the Middle East, is a two-state solution. We, we, the, the answer here uh, is a two-state solution. And yet, the more you hear that and the more you see the way the U.S. sides with Israel uh, in the way that we do, uh, and I'm not even debating whether one thinks that's the right thing to do or not. I'm just trying to I'm trying to frame two different statements. Uh, one is that we need a two state solution here, which every president since I've been alive has said, essentially. 
On the other hand, you see the way the U.S. has this really, really cozy relationship with Israel. And the more people try to juxtapose those two things, the more difficult it becomes. I raise that given that the president in the middle of all this is now headed to Israel. So how do you square two state solution commentary, public statement with we support and we stand with Israel? Those two things are harder and harder for people uh, to square fast. Yeah, and, and, and the hard part here, Tavis, is if you literally backtrack from, like, let's say two weeks ago, and you went back in time, Joe Biden was engaged in this, quite frankly, historic effort to have Saudi Arabia for the first time ever recognize the state of Israel and have normalized relations. They were literally on the path towards normalized relations. And, and that was what the, the Biden administration had been working on because they were trying to get to a, a two-state solution where Saudi Arabia being a key factor in this region, an ally, would have been fundamental to saying, hey, now we can get to a place of peace and prosperity if Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and all of the key allies understand that we're invested in the state of Israel to be safe and secure and needs to exist here. Now we can get to a place of no more expansions of occupations, right? Let's get to a, a state establishment of a two-state solution. That was the path. And I do think that Hamas, quite frankly, one of their motivations in the terrorism attacks was to know and see and understand that some of that was going on. Mm -hmm. And that, frankly, from their perspective, if you're a radical militant terrorist group and you're seeing, hey, there might be, there seems to be increasing peace conversations, right? Mm -hmm. There seems to be more willingness to engage in dialogue between Saudi Arabia and Israel. That is a threat to you. That's a concern to your own existence. And they you know, they they do what terrorist groups do. They engage in a heinous, awful act to to, to basically throw it all off course. Uh, and so I, I urge any of your listeners, you can just Google, like, you know, the last two weeks, they were engaged literally in the final stages where Saudi Arabia was literally talking about engaging and talking about normalized relations with Saudi Arabia. The Crown Prince is saying that. Mm-hmm. It would have been historic. It's yeah. a major move, and Biden was talking about going into the election, talking about he could have brought a version of a Middle East peace, you know, together. And it's all disrupted, of course, by mm-hmm. Hamas. So I just, I would bring that into context, nope. too, that to understand the motivations that were at play here. Speaking of, speaking of context, watching my time, we've got two minutes and we'll continue when we come forward. Speaking of context, though, uh, I quoted Jesse Jackson the other day uh, by saying, yesterday, in fact, by saying that content without context is pretext. Uh, that's Jesse. Content without context is pretext. He's right about that. I'll go back to your point about how we would respond if somebody said the death of the Taliban hit us, um, a cease fire uh you know put your don't, don't don't respond don't retaliate i took your point when you said it and yet there isn't the kind of history between the u.s and the taliban as there is in the middle east and there are a lot of people again becoming increasingly yeah. disturbed by the fact that we look at these moments in real time but you can't look at the content of today without putting in the broader context of yesterday yeah well, and, and, and that's the hard part has always been about the Middle East is that each side has enough substantiable, justifiable, righteous anger at the other for attacks that were heinous and terrible that you could spend. This is what's always been the challenge of the Middle East. People's history is long. They mm-hmm. can remember you can go back and people will tell you, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago, five decades ago, six, my, my, my grandparents, grandparents, this is what happened to them. And, and actually, the, the challenge of peace has always been, to some degree, to get to a better future, you're going to have to move on from the past. And I, I say that as, a, as, a, as somebody who loves history, who's, who's a student of history, who cares yeah. about the context, everything that you said, Tavis. It's, it, the, the courage of peace at that point is to say, 
you know, let the past be the past. Let's chart a different and better new future. Yeah. And too many people have been hanging on to that for so such long that it's, you know, now the status quo, to your point, has been so difficult for Palestinians that the encroachments on the West Bank make it very hard for that to become a place that you could establish a state in. You know, Gaza, with the state now that it is in, who knows whether it's even a two-state solution is possible. I'm not even sure it is, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know what other ways in which this, this could become a democratically formed government that could still keep Israelis safe and secure and have a homeland for them. If it were a one-state solution, I, I, you know, th- now I don't know where where we're at with solutions. It's got to be a two-state solution, and I don't know where the path is for What I do know is that the president um, uh, has uh, warned uh, Bibi Netanyahu about reoccupying Gaza. Um, and I don't know how that's going to work out because, again, if your mission is to crush and destroy, uh, I can't imagine, as he, given how he's moved in the past, that they would not then start um, to reoccupy Gaza. President Biden, to his credit, has at least warned them against doing that. We will see how that plays out in the coming days, uh, but I digress on that for now. When we come forward, a great deal more politics to get to, a lot of trending stuff. That's uh, that's overseas. Now we got to come home and talk about this drama today with regard to trying to elect the Speaker of the House. Um, this is a, this is a nightmare, and it it's a nightmare and circus all at the same time. We'll talk about it when we come forward. You're listening to Tavis Smile. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. More of Tavis Smiley and Faz Shakir, who is the uh, executive director of the nonprofit More Perfect Union. We'll talk about the work he's doing there as we move through this hour. But we're uh, talking politics, and God knows there's a lot to talk about. In case you've just tuned in, we spent some time, uh, and I really appreciated uh, Faz's insights on the Israeli-Hamas uh, drama. Uh, President Biden, once again, on his way to Israel, in case you've not heard that story. And that, in some ways, complicates things even more than they already are. Uh, but I digress on that for now. Um, here at home, though, speaking of drama, I called it, uh, Faz, a moment ago, a circus. Uh, it's really more like a haunted house because <laughs> there's nothing, there's not, as we approach Halloween, there's nothing more scarier. Uh, than the thought of Jim Jordan as as Speaker of the House. Now, I said days ago when Steve Scalise was uh, on the verge of being elected, we thought, uh, out of Louisiana, here's a guy who has bragged about being David Duke without the baggage. That Those are the words of uh, Steve Scalise, that he was David Duke without the, ba- without the baggage. That could have been the person third in line to the presidency. Well, we, we that didn't happen. Uh, Scalise goes down, but now Jim Jordan pops up. Uh, and here's a guy who's a, 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 a insurrectionist sympathizer who thinks nothing really went wrong on that particular day at the Capitol. So you've got you got an insurrectionist sympathizer now who could be the next Speaker of the House. Either way, we're in the wrong frame. No question about that. I said moments ago that Bibi Netanyahu, to my mind, is the wrong person uh, at this moment uh, to be leading Israel. That's my assessment of it. I'm not the only one. There are Israelis who feel the same way. Uh, but he's the wrong person. And if BB's the wrong person, God knows that Jim Jordan's the wrong person. Uh, that's my assessment. Now I pass the mic to you. What's your read of this, uh, this haunted house, uh, that we are having to watch, uh, every day. It's getting scarier and scarier. It seems to me. Well, and, and agreeing with everything that you said, Tavis, I'll add that he's exactly what the Republicans deserve. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> you get, you get, you you want to be a party that doesn't give a damn about de- democracy, doesn't care about institutions, wants to, 
you know, make it harder for any of the, us to do hard things through government. If that's your mentality, that's your philosophy, you don't care about the institutions, you want to wreck it, then you got your guy. That's your person. He's mm. come. He's a nihilist, right, by his nature. He didn't, he, as you said, didn't, didn't believe in the democratic outcome of, of the last election. So now you put them in charge, and I think, and sadly, at some point, we have to get rid of this cancer. And they, they on the right, especially, they're going to have to cleanse themselves of this cancer. And they, oh, the only way to do it is to go right through it and go for it. Here you go. You know, this is this is this best represents you guys. This is your values. This is your corruption racket. If you look at the money that you know Jordan, Jordan makes, is he's basically bought and sold for by large corporate lobbyists all over this town. This is what he does. It's like he's it, 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 it's going to be rough. <laughs> it's going to be difficult, but it's going to be revealing, Tavis. And so, like, there we go. Let's 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 have it out. Let's show show everybody your true colors. And I think it'll at least make for um, you know, sadly, a, another election contest in which mm-hmm. you get pretty black or white here. You know, you want to choose which which side you're on. Let's let's wrestle for a moment with what you just said a moment ago, Faz, and that is that this is something a cancer, as you put it, they have to cleanse themselves of. I think you're right about that, but I don't see where, when, or how that happens. Do you? <laughs> Not quickly. Obviously, with Donald Trump still running strong in the Republican ranks, I think that the challenge we're having here, Tavis, is like at some, you know, you're having a, you're, let's assume we're at a 50-50 stalemate, and part of the country is certainly that way. But when we get to these margins of just changing the country slowly but surely to a 52-48, 53-47, those types of things will have large ramifications. And I do think that with Trump, with Jordan, the, 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 the act is getting pretty damn old. And, and I, I understand for some people the nihilism, the lack of belief in any of this government worth investing in, that it's all rotten, it's all you know garbage. And like that, that's the attitude. That's, the, that's what Trump and, and Jordan have been selling. If you look at the gag organ, what, what, what Trump is doing right now, just engage in warfare against a judge, blast the whole criminal justice process. And it has some appeal out there. We got to be honest about it because he's a cult of personality. He's certainly, there's some there's some appeal around disrupt the whole damn thing because people don't believe the government can actually work for you. And I, that's what I'm really fully invested in. The only way you get rid of the cancer you show is by you know steadily but surely. I'm going to show you little by little mm. something can work and improve in your life, and I'm invested in it. I think mm. when you have a test of the American public where they're at on tap, tap we'll find out. But I, I, I got to believe a majority of the American public is still on the side of like, no, these democratic institutions, the democratic way of life is worth saving. Yeah, as we know, uh, as this audience knows, Republicans control the House by a narrow 200 to 20, 221 to 212 margin, all those twos and ones, 221 for Republicans, 212 for Democrats. It's a narrow margin, so he needs 217 uh, to be elected uh, speaker. Uh, And that is not a foregone conclusion. Um, Steve Scalise uh, was also recommended and supported by the caucus, but couldn't make it happen on the House floor. Jim Jordan supported by the caucus. No evidence at the moment. Again, this is a dynamic uh, conversation, so anything could happen at any at any moment. Uh, but no evidence right now that he has exactly what he needs to pull this off on the floor, never mind his support, once again, by the caucus. As you recall, there were 15 votes. It took, uh, it took Kevin McCarthy 15 rounds to finally get across the line, and then we know what happened afterwards. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to take Jordan 15, but I don't think it's going to happen on the first ballot. So we will see how long it takes him to be elected speaker. Either way, when it's all said and done, Here's the guy who has absolutely no interest whatsoever. He's to the right even of Kevin McCarthy. He has no interest whatsoever in working with Democrats. What happens to government 
when you have elected someone who doesn't respect the outcome of the last election, who's an insurrectionist sympathizer and has no interest whatsoever in working with Democrats when those numbers are as close as they are. What happens? Well, <laughs> you, you got to film it. The, preg- the pregnant pause. The pregnant pause. Well, yeah. It's not going to be great for us, but let's be honest. It ain't great for anybody. But I do think in the, in the longer project of uh, peeling people out of their corners and mm-hmm. saying, can we find some common ground of where we actually can work together? That, I don't think he's going to – that's not a sale you want to take to the American public here, Republicans, but – you know, the only reason he is where he is is Donald Trump endorsed him, we know, right? So he yeah. he initially had lost his first round, as you mentioned, to, to Steve Scalise. And then Scalise couldn't get the votes, pulled himself out. And then Jim Jordan rises from the ashes because he's got Donald Trump at his back. And I think most of the people, the p- people who are going to try to want to oppose him and the Republicans are going to have to think twice because they know they're also going up against the big guy. Yeah. You know, I, and, and, and a lot of them are scared of him. So yeah. I, I think at some point we're all, we're all just reckoning with the big you know, the, the big elephant in the room, which is yep. which was fundamentally Trumpism that still governs all this. Yeah, I think for Hakeem Jeffries, um, he's playing the long game, not the short game. The short game is that uh, Jim Jordan may, in fact, be elected speaker. Uh, and if that does happen, uh, I think Democrats believe Hakeem uh, Jeffries being their leader, they believe that's a good thing. Because to your point, it shows the nation what happens when you elect a guy like Jordan who has no interest in working with Democrats and nothing gets done. Um, I was just reading an article yesterday. You probably saw the same thing I saw. Um, that based on the new maps, based on gerrymandering, let's just call it what it is, gerrymandering, based on these new maps, um, Democrats are going to pick up seats uh, in this next election. It looks This, this, this gerrymandered uh, new map looks really good for Democrats. They're going to pick up a minimum of six seats, and that makes that margin much closer. And if Jim Jordan goes completely nuclear, which is, which is his style, uh, he, he likes to implode things, as you said earlier, the long view is, that this Jim Jordan election is great for Democrats come next year. There's a very, very, very good chance they're going to pick up more seats uh, in more competitive districts. And Hakeem Jeffries could, in fact, be the first ever uh, African-American speaker of the House. So, I then, again, I think this is not about the short game. It's about the long game, uh, and we will see what happens in the coming months. A great deal more to talk about uh, with our guest, Fash Shakir, who you're listening to right now on Tavis Smile. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. It does indeed with our guest, Fash Keir, uh, who is a uh, uh, Democratic political advisor. Uh, currently executive director of the nonprofit media organization More Perfect Union, previously senior advisor on Bernie Sanders' uh, 2020 presidential campaign and an aide to congressional leaders, including Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. He's a bad man, has worked with uh, some bad people. <laughs> and so I'm honored to, uh, to be in dialogue with, uh, with Faz Shakir. Uh, Faz, let me, let me, let me, speaking of Bernie Sanders, let me uh, talk some politics beyond the election of the next House Speaker. Uh, by the way, as we speak right now, all these House speeches are underway. Uh, on the nomination of Jim Jordan, and we will see how many votes it takes. Uh, to the extent he does get across the finish line, we'll see whether or not he uh, uh, takes 15 the way Kevin McCarthy did, more or less, uh, that to be decided um, uh, as this day moves forward. That said, um, very quickly, what did you make of Bernie Sanders? 
endorsing Joe Biden. Here's a progressive, and there are a lot of progressives. You listen to a guy right now who does what I call unapologetically progressive radio every day. Uh, I love Bernie Sanders, uh, and yet there are a whole lot of folks disappointed that Bernie didn't just endorse Biden, but did it pretty early on in the process. Uh, as a guy who worked with Bernie Sanders, how did you read that? Well, if Biden has been moving in our direction on so many things, whether it be student debt cancellation, whether you talk about some of the climate civilian corps, he's created these jobs in climate um, for young people. He's trying to help now take on corporate America through these junk fees. He raised corporate taxes through the Inflation Reduction Act. He instituted a, a, a tax on stock buybacks. There are a lot of things that have oriented our economy towards working class people. You have the first president who goes to the picket line. And so it's, it's not to say that, like, everything about him is amazing and it's all over. It is to say that we accept and appreciate movement in our direction. This is the path that we want to go and that we want to be an allyship in helping you move in this way. Because the alternative is, I mean, we could obviously sit it out and, and criticize him, but we have had a good working relationship with the White House in which I think, you know, it's not as if they agree with everything that we do, but they, they hear us. You, we, you don't get to Medicare price negotiation and those kinds of things without a progressive movement in the tent mm-hmm. who's pushing them. And so that's a, that's a trade-off. These are tough tough calls, and I appreciate and respect all of my progressive allies who want to stay outside the tent and say, hey, listen, we're going to push and, 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 and push you to go bolder and bigger and better. And that's a role for everyone in the ecosystem. But for Bernie himself, I think it was like, listen, I got somebody as an ally with power right now who I think can work with me to do some of the things I've long wanted to do. And even as Bernie um, Sanders endorses Joe Biden, and for that matter, AOC endorses Joe Biden, uh, the president and his allies are doing everything they can to crush. And I do mean crush. I heard, I mentioned earlier Bibi Netanyahu, who wanted to crush and destroy um, Hamas. That's exactly what Biden and his allies are doing to third-party candidates. They want to crush and destroy Cornell West and, and Robert Kennedy Jr. and, and Marion Williamson. Anybody who's running as a third-party candidate, even think about it. We don't know who the no-labels candidate will be as yet, but they are determined to crush and destroy these third-party candidates. I've written an op-ed piece about that that's coming out soon that you'll be seeing and reading and hearing about. Uh, I'll top-line what I say to my op-ed piece when we come back and see if Faz Shakir agrees or disagrees with my take. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Tavis Smiley continues when we come forward. forward. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 Tavis Smiley and Faz Shakir, who is the uh, uh, executive director and founder of More Perfect Union, a nonprofit. We've been talking politics all this hour, and uh, in case you've just tuned in, we've gone uh, through the Middle East. We've gone through Jim Jordan uh, and uh, his attempt to become Speaker of the House. We talked about Bernie Sanders endorsing. Joe Biden and and AOC, for that matter, and what is the progressive strategy with Biden as the 2024 nominee? We could spend hours talking just about that question. What is the progressive strategy when it comes to Biden in 2024? Uh, And now I want to talk in the I've got about three minutes left here. I want to talk just briefly here uh, uh, about uh, Biden and his allies. It was a huge piece in The New York Times uh, some days ago. You probably saw it fast uh, about the efforts by Biden and his team to crush and destroy um, these third party candidates, get them out of the way because they're afraid that it might siphon off votes from them. And Donald Trump uh, may uh, get back in the White House. That is an existential threat. I understand that and I get it. I just don't think you suspend democratic principles of allowing people to run and to be heard 
and letting the voters make their own decisions. I don't think you, you suspend that democratic principle because you're scared of one guy uh, and the fact that votes might be siphoned away from you. In, in, in a word, I think that what the Biden people are doing is anti-democratic. It's anti-democratic. That's my assess, assessment. Give me yours. You're, you're a smart guy, Tavis, and I respect your opinion. I'm not. My view would be that I don't think that they're saying you can't run. Mm-hmm. They are going to make a politics ain't beanbags. Sure. You know, you want to step into the arena. <laughs> I get that. Yes, guess what? You get some kind. You're going to get some opposition. So if you want to run against it, you want to help. You know, siphon votes away from Biden or siphon votes away from Trump or whatever. Expect some pushback. And my point was, yeah, go ahead and run. We want people to run, but I do think we, it's incumbent on those of us who want to stop Trump to have like a, an argument back to them. It's not just say, hey, go run without a counter argument. And to his credit, he's not like he's not bad mouthing Cornell. He's a very decent and good human being. That's not going on. It's just saying, hey, if you want to, you know, here's the stakes that as we see it. And then you may have a different point of view. Go ahead and make your argument. But we got it's incumbent upon us to say politics ain't be bad. We're going to have an argument about this. Yeah. Uh, and yet um, you were around fast. So, you know, uh, they didn't play fair. They didn't play. They didn't play nice, nice with Bernie. I get it. It ain't beanbags. But they tried to destroy <laughs> Bernie Sanders, man. They tried to shut him out and shut him down. In 2016, they did. Yes. They did. That's exactly what happened in 2016. I would say that 2020 was better. I mean, it was a fair, a fair process. Voters had a choice and they decided. But obviously, you know, we saw a lot of endorsements um, from you know, Obama and uh, Buttigieg and others go against us in the last moment. But that said, voters decided. And yeah. so I think from 2020, we had a better playing field than it was in 2016 when, as you say, they they used their party apparatus to stack the deck against oh, yeah. Bernie Sanders in a real way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that was in the context of a Democratic primary, to be clear, right? No, idea, we're talking about third-party candidates, but yeah, they were using the party apparatus to say, nope. you know, we're going to crutch somebody who's trying to run as a Democrat. That's even worse. <laughs> That's even worse. But yeah, I, absolutely, but I, right. But I, yeah, I, I, you want to you live your values in, within the party, right? Yeah. You're in the family, you're in the tent. They're, the beanbag is supposed to be for your opponents. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I got an op-ed piece coming out. When it comes out, I'm sure I'll be catching some hell about that, and so I'll, I'll defend myself then when it comes out. I got 30 seconds here, very tight 30 seconds. Um, tell me what a more perfect union does right quick. Oh, well, you got to tell stories from the working class. Uh, you know, Tavis, one of the biggest issues in America is income inequality. And, like, what, what my view is we don't have enough media journalism tells the stories of workers' lives, whether you're a worker who's working a gig work and getting screwed on your wage and, and you don't even know how much a ride costs. You mm-hmm. don't like, look at all these people who drive Uber. You don't even know how much you're actually getting paid for a ride. It's yeah. crazy. And they want to call them a small business. You got people on the picket lines at UAW. What we're trying to do is just tell the stories, not from the perspective of corporate elite, who we hear every day on mainstream media, oh, tell yeah. from the workers' lives. So it. if you go on there, you'll just hear the hear the stories about the economy from real people who actually do the work. It's called More Perfect Union. You can find it online. His name is Faz Shakir Faz. Love you. Appreciate you. Talk to you soon, my friend. All the best to you. Thank you, Tavis. Thank you for your time. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.